0: Welcome to the Foresight Health Roundup podcast, Foresight Health's podcast series for healthcare revolutionaries. Outcomes matter, customers count, and value rules. Hello again, everyone. This is Dave Berta, news editor at Foresight Health. It is Thursday, November 3rd. I hope everyone had a fun and safe Halloween. We had fewer trick-or-treaters than usual. I think the light rain kept a lot of people away. Hey, more candy for me. But this Tuesday, November 8th, no matter what the weather is or how much candy you have, you have to go out and vote as if your life depended on it. Why? Because your life does depend on it. If you want to keep your democracy and the rights you enjoy under that democracy, vote blue. There really is no other choice. Now, that doesn't mean we don't have any problems in this country. We do. And one of them is the healthcare industrial complex, a phrase coined by our own Dave Johnson. And that's what we're going to talk about today, thanks to two new studies in the Journal of the American Medical Association. The first looks at industry payments to physicians and advanced practice clinicians. The second looks at healthcare lobbying expenditures over the past 20 years. Following the industry money on today's episode are Dave Johnson, founder and CEO of Foresight Health, and Julie Merchinson, partner at Transformation Capital. But before we say hello to Dave and Julie, I wanted to say hello to the sponsor of the Foresight Health Roundup podcast, Infor. By connecting the business and mission sides of healthcare, institutions can enhance staff experience and simplify patient interactions. With data-driven insights and greater operational control, our sponsor, Infor, supports your company in making healthcare a calling again for your staff.
1: Hi, Dave. Hi, Julie. How are you guys doing this morning, Dave? I'm not looking forward to falling back this Sunday as daylight savings time ends. I love the extra hour we gain on that day, but hate the darkness that descends at 430 in the afternoon. On the plus side, this may be the last time we have to spring forward or fall back if Congress passes legislation that makes daylight savings time permanent. It's about the only subject on which there may be bipartisan agreement.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Bedtime's at eight o'clock, right? Uh, Julie, how are you?
2: I'm well, I'm back on the road this week doing my DC, Nashville, Philadelphia visit. And I just want to give a shout out to Peggy O'Kane who runs NCQA. That woman is amazing. Uh, I spent a couple of days in DC at their health innovation summit and the energy around quality of care and how people are actually using technology and quality is pretty incredible. So good job, NCQA.
0: Yeah, no, no. She's great. I've interviewed her a few times, and she really does push things in the right direction. That's great. Thanks, Julie. Now, before we talk about these two new studies, I wanted to circle back to Halloween. Dave, did you get a lot of trick-or-treaters? Did you see any award-winning
1: costumes? Well, you can't get enough of Halloween this year. Are you still in costume, Dave?
0: I'm always in costume, <laughs> anyway. Dave. Yeah. (laughs) This isn't even me. It's somebody else.
1: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Anyway, trick-or-treating is just different in urban neighborhoods. First, it goes on forever. Local chambers sponsor neighborhood events throughout October. We were having lunch at Elephant and Vine near DePaul University two Saturdays ago, and loads of TNTers came in while we were eating. Same thing happens all over the city. Second, the parents always accompany the kids, and they're usually in costume too, very different than when we were kids, and they only go to homes that they know. So bottom line, we see loads of great costumes all month long, but don't get any trick-or-treaters coming to our house on Halloween anymore. Terry and I don't even buy candy. We just end up eating it ourselves.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, things are different. Thanks, Dave. Julie, how did you fare shadowing your daughter in her princess costume? And uh, what other interesting costumes did you see?
2: First, Dave, she's 13. It was a fairy. We're beyond a princess years. Oh, sorry. <laughs> 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 uh, I am pretty pleased, though, to say that it covered a lot more of her body than I anticipated. So I was a happy mama, that's for sure.
0: <laughs> Making the distinction between princess and fairy. I get it. Yeah. <laughs> What's next? Diva?
1: What in the sequence, Julie? What comes next?
2: Oh, she's already a diva, that's for sure. And on this family thing, like we used to dress up in family costumes, but we're so well beyond that now. I mean, we've jumped straight to like she's a teen on the run and we have to track her on our apps. Like we're not even sure where she is. Uh. So it's it's a different experience. Yeah. But yes. My favorite costume was our dog who we dressed up like Chewbacca and we called him Chewbarka. See what I did there?
1: Oh. Grown,
0: Great. I love it. Yes, I love it. Thanks, Julie. I watched one kid who was dressed like a T-Rex and he kept dropping his candy bag as he walked down the street because his uh, arms were short. And I really think that's why dinosaurs went extinct. It wasn't an asteroid. They just couldn't hold their food. So I think they starved to death. So I'm going to write that up in a study. Speaking of studies, let's talk about this first one in JAMA. Researchers looked at industry payments to doctors and advanced practice clinicians like nurse practitioners and physician assistants. Providers have to publicly report and disclose those payments under CMS's open payments program. Here's what the researchers found. Advanced practice clinicians were just as likely as doctors to accept industry payments. Uh, 36% of APCs accepted payments compared with 35% of doctors, but the median dollar amount accepted by APCs was much lower, $118 to $175 for doctors. The most common form of payment was food and drinks, and the most common product associated with a payment was prescription drugs. Dave, what's the news here, and is that news good or bad for consumers?
1: Whatever news there is here is both old news and bad news a bribe is a bribe is a bribe. As an investment banker, I had to take a compliance training course every year to keep my license current. An anti-corruption and bribery module was always part of the training. A bribe is any gift or payment whose intent is to influence a purchasing decision. It's what it is. Do you think these drug reps are dropping off pizza at medical offices because it's their idea of a good time? Of course not. Since this is the first study that's reviewed industry payments to advanced practice clinicians. The only new news here is that APCs are as susceptible to the influence tactics that the industry uses as physicians are. Three general points, and then I'll give another example from my banking days. First, it doesn't take much to sway behavior. Human beings are wired for reciprocity. Someone does a favor for me, I wanna do a favor in return. Numerous academic studies have found correlation between payments and prescribing behavior. One meta study I found on the HHS website reviewed 36 studies and 101 analyses. Guess what they found? There is a causal relationship between payment and prescribing behaviors. I'm shocked, just shocked. Second, transparency regarding payments doesn't stop the influence peddling. Since 2013, physicians and APCs have had to report industry payments. By the way, the total industry payments are much larger than the slice captured by the JAMA study. In 2018, payments to physicians totaled $2.2 billion. In some specialties, over 80% of physicians took industry payments. The dollar value of those payments is increasing, not decreasing. So bribery is alive and very well in medicine, despite the transparency. Third and finally, these types of influencing payments flourish in markets that lack price transparency and tolerate excessive profits. No physician or APC knows the actual prices paid for drugs and devices. Manufacturers love that because they can push those prices ever higher. I'll illustrate this point with an example from my days as a junior investment banker. When I broke into investment banking in the mid-80s, We junior bankers often spent all night at the printers reviewing documents for accuracy as they came off the presses. Sounds pretty boring, right? You'd think so, except the liquor was flowing, snacks were plentiful, we could order any food we wanted from the servers who waited on us beck and call. There were pool tables, big screen TVs and video games. It was a blast. We'd scan documents, but there were very few errors and the lawyers almost always caught them. In the 1980s, printers were living La Dolce Vita. They always had tickets to give away to concert and sporting events. They threw lavish parties for underappreciated junior bankers. Why did they do that? We got to pick the printers, and they were the ones making the outrageous profits. That all went away in the 90s when printing went remote and became a commodity. Price competition was fierce. There wasn't enough profit anymore for junior bankers. Don't shed any tears for the printers or the bankers. They made the most of the market dysfunction while they could, including me. Medicine could transform in the same way that document printing did if pricing transparency and value-based competition became standardized business practice, particularly for routine services. I've said it before, and I'll say it again, we won't change the way we practice healthcare until we change the way we pay for healthcare. Outcomes do matter, customers do count, and most of all, value does rule. Got it, Dave. Yeah, I remember those
0: days of printer perks. Long gone, but fond memories. Thank you. Julie, any questions for Dave?
2: Dave, that was a walk down memory lane. That was quite something. I do almost want to shed a tear for you, but not really. <laughs> So, Dave, my question here on this clear bribery, I agree, like, where does it end? Does the custodial staff start to, you know, get into the game? We have Stark in place for doctors, but I doubt it's kept up with a diversifying care team. So you know, who do you think ultimately needs to be responsible for addressing the risk posed by clinicians and technicians being swayed by these free meals and gifts? And transparency is not coming anytime soon to solve the problem.
1: Regarding payments of any kind to practitioners with the purpose of influencing their prescribing behaviors, responsibility for addressing this issue falls directly to government regulators. CMS should outlaw payments of any kind to practitioners, police, so they capture bad actors and disproportionately punish those that it does capture. A bribe is a bribe is a bribe. We could and should ask the industry to police itself. This has worked well in eliminating pay-to-play behaviors in municipal finance. But we can't depend on the industry to do the right thing all the time. Too many companies with way too much money will look for any loophole they can find to exploit. The rules need to be clear and unambiguous. No payments to clinicians ever under any circumstances. Zero tolerance. Thanks, Dave. Now let's talk about
0: the second study in JAMA. And Julie, you brought this issue up on last week's show. It's it's like we see things before everyone else, and that's why you need to listen to the podcast every week, right? Anyway, researchers looked at how much money different healthcare sectors spent on lobbying from 2000 through 2020, so a 20-year period. They looked at four sectors, payers, pharmaceutical and health product manufacturers, providers, which included hospitals and doctors, and other, which included mostly healthcare consultants. Here's what they found. Total annual lobbying expenditures by all four sectors nearly doubled to $713.6 million in 2020, compared with $358.2 million in 2000. Drug and device makers slightly outspent providers in 2020, 308.4 million to 286.9 million. A distant third and fourth were payers at 80.6 million and others at 37.7 million. Julie, I'll ask you the same questions. What's the news here and is that news good or bad for consumers?
2: You know, it's funny. When I think about healthcare lobbying, I think primarily about pharma. But the providers are certainly right up there. It's amazing. So, yeah, why does this massive increase in lobbying expenditures matter? Well, it matters because a small number of firms spent a massively disproportionate amount of money on lobbying, which researchers are now concerned could lead to some other constituencies actually being underrepresented in policymaking. And it's amazing how you know, a little more spending by a few can throw, uh, what, equal policy access out the window. It's really, we're in a bad cycle. And, you know, I'm a believer that most lobbying is bad for consumers. What we know about this increase is that a lot of it came in the early 2000s as everyone around the hoop tried to influence ACA and its implementation. So, you know, this increased spending is not entirely new, but we did see in 2021 with this nearly $700 million in lobbying, the highest year ever for lobbying expenditures. We saw that seven of the top 10 organizations registered to lobby on the Inflation Reduction Act recently here. So, seven of the top 10 out of more than 2,000 were pharmaceutical or health insurance companies. So, you know, the concentration is super high. Uh, top 10% of lobbying firms accounted for um seventy percent of lobbying outlays from payers, sixty nine from manufacturers, and fifty nine from providers. So massive concentration. And you know at the end of the day, none of it's really good news. We have a lot of lobbyists pocketing, frankly, from what I can see, what could be a lot of money spent on, I don't know, things like care delivery and hospital operations, and I don't know, God forbid, like digital innovation. So to me, this is not only about how those organizations are controlling the policy machine, but money that is now just being spent. I mean, almost for kind of the hell of it, that could be said in much better ways.
0: Couldn't agree more. Thanks, Julie. Dave, any questions for Julie?
1: Julie, it's time to target that big brain of yours on the destructive behavior of the healthcare industrial complex. For argument's sake... Let's describe bad legislation as anti-competitive and harmful to consumers. By contrast, good legislation is pro-market and beneficial to consumers. So here's my question. What is your best or worst example of lobbying either helping bad legislation pass or preventing good legislation from becoming law?
2: Oh, gosh. Well, let me attempt to answer your question with personal experience. When I was at Manat and the ACA was becoming a thing, Manat and many other firms were hired by partnered with lobbying firms, hired obviously by their current or you know, new clients trying to get pieces, words, sentences, concepts, thoughts, ideas into certain bills. So you have several firms who are literally just writing the perfect sentence to try to squeeze it in in ways that are just chaotic. Like there's not there's not a streamlined process where one person's writing a bill somewhere on the hill, right? And when you have organizations AMA, AHA, Pharma, <laughs> everyone around the hoop, certainly AHIP, many back in that day and still today profit from expanded insurance coverage. Now the AHA supported expansion of commercial coverage, of course, but they wanted to limit Medicaid coverage. They didn't want those percentages to be the same in that bill. Why? Because they lose money on Medicaid patients. It's a much less profitable business for them. The AMA, they don't want cuts to come from doctor's pockets. So they succeeded in killing things like annual fees for doctors who participated in Medicare and Medicaid. They killed a tax on cosmetic surgery, which seems like a really stupid idea in the first place. But They certainly killed payment cuts. And the power in all this comes when these organizations who have massive visibility, who represent in large part the majority of the types of organizations that we all utilize in the healthcare industry, when the AMA says that they refuse to pledge their support for the final bill or for some version of the bill until payment cuts are completely eliminated, they hold those bills hostage. So I don't know. It's it's hard for me, Dave, to give one example as much as like the experience of what I saw happen during that time. It's chaos and it's it's control.
0: Yeah. Interesting. Thanks, Julie. Yeah, it it is always interesting to see how the sausage gets made. Uh, It's too bad consumers don't have the same sway as big corporations and legacy industry sectors. At least not yet, right, Dave? The customer revolution in healthcare is coming. Now let's briefly talk about other news that happened this week. Julie, what else happened this past week that made you go, what?
2: So I saw that Orange County, you know, fairly well-to-do county in Southern California, declared a health state of emergency because of RSV and being over capacity in hospitals with kids being admitted. And that's pretty scary. To see something like that happen in, in that kind of
0: county. Yeah, that is, and it's happening elsewhere too, so something to yep. keep an eye on. Thanks, Julie. Dave, what other news made you spit out your coffee?
1: Oh, this really did. Since we're on the dismal topic of influence peddling and its consequential behaviors, I saw this week that CVS and Walgreens announced agreements to pay billions to settle claims against their peddling of opioids. Walmart is evidently also close to making a deal. These agreements are all contingent on getting sign off from the states and Native American tribes that have brought the lawsuits. What a sorry chapter in the annals of medicine. The healthcare industrial complex unleashed a plague on an unsuspecting American public. Everyone was involved, from manufacturers to distributors to physicians to pharmacies to medical schools to McKinsey. America will continue paying a huge price in dollars and lives for their malfeasance. Dave, let's do a cheerier topic next week. <laughs> I hear you, Dave. I will endeavor to
0: do that. It'll be hard, mm-hmm. but I will, I'll make good on that request. Thanks, Dave, and thank you again, Julie. And thanks again to our sponsor, Infor. Infor connects the business and mission sides of healthcare, enhancing the staff experience and simplifying patient interactions with data-driven insights and greater operational control. That is all the time we have for today. If you'd like to learn more about the topics we discussed on today's show, please visit our website at foresighthealth.com and don't forget to tell a friend about the Foresight Health Roundup podcast. Subscribe now and don't miss another segment of the best 20 minutes in healthcare. Thanks for listening. I'm Dave Berta for Foresight
2: Health.